five four three two one zero and liftoff. Dispatches, a production of Blur Bank, is an in-depth look at those living artistic lives. Each episode will feature photographs and audio interviews with narrative pioneers who have taken creativity and publishing in their own hands. From artists to authors, photographers to philosophers, Dispatches will reveal the faces and foundations of those who lead the creative way. Hey everybody in Shifterland, I am in Ladera Ranch, California today with one of my longest friends in photography, believe it or not, Paul Giroux. How you doing today? I'm good, man. I How should say photographer Paul Giroux. Oh. Uh, we have, we could talk about a million different things. So I have known you <laughs> Filibertos. since... Filibertos. <laughs> Filibertos. It's an inside joke. Um, maybe we'll get to that. It's a little on the disgusting side, but you guys might want to know. Uh, we've known each other since 93 when I got an internship in the photography department at the Arizona Republic in Phoenix, and you were a staffer there. But we're going to get to that in a minute. But I want to go back, way back. Because photography for you went way back. You were like in middle school when you started this, right? Which I was 12, yeah. Okay, so let me just paint you a picture here. I was thinking about this on the way down here. So you started taking pictures at 12. And when, what age were you when you did your first, let's say, assignment? Or first, someone told mm. you you need to go photograph that and you did it? Before I was 15. Okay. So I mean, I used to get a, a check from the newspaper for five bucks <laughs> for like being a stringer so, for so, a month. <laughs> so when you were 14? Yeah, 13 or 14. And I was getting published when I was 12 in the newspaper. But so, I was working with a, my merit badge counselor for Boy Scouts. I mean, yeah, I'm a kid from the Midwest. What can you say? My uh, merit badge counselor was the editor of the paper. And so I would go along. I would ride along with him. And he would... He would help me out as I was photographing, so I, he'd teach me the ropes. So I just want to paint you a picture of me in middle school, because when I hear that you're doing assignments at 12, like I was a mutant. I'm, I'm not. I'm not even. Ta- I'm not. I'm being impolite to mutants. My favorite outfit was white Asics high tops, parachute pants, and everyone wore their parachute pants skin tight. Mine were baggy, and then an Izod oh, shirt were a with trendsetter. <laughs> An getting Izod ready, shirt. For, getting ready for hammer, weren't you? I don't know what I was thinking. Then Vanilla I, then ice. I had a, a, an Izod shirt with a collar up. Okay, so that's Very that's 80s. the ensemble. That was the days that I felt I was at my best. Was in that outfit. <clears throat> but then, did you have product in your hair? Well, I'm getting in my hair. Okay. So. I was at lunch one day with my buddies, and we were geeks. We were like the outcast table. And this this cool kid, I think, was taking pity on us. Came up to us and said. He just walked up to the table. He leaned over, like, so we had to stop eating. And he was like, look, girls like short on top and long in the back. He was like the mullet whisperer. Because at the time, I don't think we even knew. No one was using the term mullet. You know, we were in the middle of it. So I was like, I saw him and I thought, all right, that's it. I'm growing it. So I not only had the ensemble of the high tops, the parachute pants, and the Izod shirt. And there is a photograph of that in existence. But I, I was sporting the mullet as well. So the idea that... As a human being in that condition that I would be able to do photographic assignments is so foreign to me. So what impact did the Boy Scouts have in like giving you the discipline to go, hey, this is well, it's a real because now as I, as I look back on my life growing up, one of the only things that I ever regret yeah. is the Sorry. fact that I was never an Eagle Scout. Did you try to be an Eagle Scout? Uh, well, I said I wanted to be one. I was a, a, what was it, Star Life and Eagle. I was a Star Scout. I was like almost a life scout, yeah. which was the next step to Eagle. And what ne- stopped you? Yeah. I got, went desire. into high school. Yeah. Wow. I just yeah. kind of got interested in other things. You know, when, if you, 
if if I would have got it before I went into high school, I think I would have been okay. But I didn't, yeah. and and it was like it, it was like one of those things. I remember my mom when I was in freshman year in high school. Somehow I got her to sign my course, my classes for school, and she didn't know that I got out of Spanish class. And I remember... Pendejo. (laughs) I remember her saying to me, I'm going to hit you, boy. No, she actually said, you're going to regret it someday. And I I remember hearing myself laugh at her. Well, that's that's what you do at that age. Yeah, and I just, yeah, like, what do you Yeah, I got it figured out. Yeah. And... I'll tell you, I did regret that. No Spanish. No Spanish. Yeah, of or course. very little. And well, especially for you and me who spent so much time in Spanish speaking states, regions. Yeah. You know, yeah. San Antonio, where I grew up, but at least part of the time was three quarter Latino. Mm-hmm. Everybody spoke Spanish. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's true. And, and it's those, those decisions you make at that age where you think you have things figured out and you literally do not know anything other than like maybe how to feed yourself. That's Barely. It. Barely. Yeah. But you had a lot of cheese from where you're from. So, uh, okay. Speed dating here. This interview is all over the place. Speed dating. Favorite photographer of all time. Hmm. Gosh, if I had to pick one. Boy, it's a toss-up between probably Burnett, David Burnett and William Albert Allard. Yeah, two good choices. Followed by Kadelka. So, yeah, another yeah, one, another one yeah. in there. You could interchange those on any given yeah, day. Yeah, I guess the, the first two were maybe... Color. S- I was going to say color, and then Kadelka. Es- especially... Allard with his art of the photo essay. Well, not only that, he was the first guy that I saw who blended strobe with ambient, ambient in a way that I had never seen before. And he was the the. And then Harvey did it a little bit later, but Allard was the guy. Yeah, Allard was the shit. And I mean, I I, I watched what he did, and I thought, man, that is so cool. I want to do that. I want to, I I want to go to those places that he's been to. I I mean, and. One of them was a story he did on the Amish, and it yeah. was like that was a foreign country within our country. Yeah, and still is to yeah, some degree. It, yeah, it is. And yeah. I actually did an Amish story when I was in, working in Chicago as an intern. Yeah, I went up to Wisconsin on my own time to do it, and it was an amazing experience. Nowhere near as good as the photos Allard made, but for me it was a So you're, you're a dive real, into that. Yeah. I got hit in the head with a plastic tractor by an Amish kid at a roadside stand. That's my, <laughs> that is my uh, experience with the Amish. In Indiana where I was born and, and lived for several years, there was a pretty sizable Amish community. Weren't my they mom in Goshen pulled, or something like that? Or? I don't remember exactly. Yeah. We pulled over to buy something and I was trying to play with this kid and he just took one look at me and clocked me in the side of the head with this tractor. I was able to walk away because I'm so tough, but you know, mo- most people would have probably been killed. But that's beside the point. Okay, probably the most important question I'm going to ask you before we get into the real interview is under fire or Salvador? Mm. Take your time. I got to go with Salvador. Really? How Jimmy come? Woods. James Woods in that movie is, uh, it's so good. In fact, that's the, one of the first movies that I saw where I looked at someone like him in that role and I thought, he's not acting. He ha- that's who he is in real life. He's got to be because it's so good. Both of those movies had their own characteristics that were really good. I think yeah. the other thing that was with continuity, they were both fairly true to how a photojournalist would act, how they would carry themselves, how they would carry their gear. Because yeah. you see most movies in oh, Hollywood and, and the continuity for them is absolutely abysmal yeah it's terrible it's it and it's but i'm sure that doctors feel the same way about how they are perceived on on screen who cares about them 
This is about Dr. Poses. But um, there's a another movie that came out in the early 90s, I think 91 on HBO, and it was Somebody's Gotta Shoot the Photo oh, by with Roy Scheider. Roy Scheider, about and, death row, right? Yeah, well, he was... Lethal I, injection. Yeah, it was about... Yeah, it, he. I think he was loosely patterned after Eddie Adams. I could be wrong. But okay. when I saw it, I was like, whoa, somebody did their homework because back then, brown donkey bags were... My first ever. The norm. I, was it F2 donkey? No, yeah, F2 brown. That's yeah. what I have. My first camera bag, and yeah. I still have it. Yeah. And then he had a F3 with that crazy flash adapter that went over the rewind knob. Yep. And then he had a Vivitar 283, and it was bounced. bounced. And he had a and like a index card as yeah. a bounce card. And yeah. I was like, somebody actually did their homework on that, because that's yeah. how most of us worked back then. So I have a, a screenplay idea that I have yet to write, but I've got the idea, and I think it's really good. And there's a photography component of that, and that is one of the things that has always been in the notes along the edges of the page is that this is going to look real. This is going to be real. Whoever gets that leading role that will surely win me an Academy Award for screenwriting is going to know their way around a camera. That's a very important thing. But, okay, so let's say, let's, let's go back here. You're 12 years old, you're 14 years old, you're 15, you're starting to get printed in the paper. What at what point in time and at what age did you say to yourself, this is the career? Because there's a big difference be, okay. between a hobbyist and a yeah. career. I mean, I, I, I still remember to this day that feeling of complete awe when I saw that first print pop up. And it wasn't even my photograph. It was the editor of the paper. In the dark room. In the dark room. And he was showing the process of printing. And then I... From about 12 to 15, I was just like madly obsessed with photography. And then I kind of crashed and burned and just kind of burned out on it. And I was like, I just, I got really into running. So I, oh, the last right. two years that's of right. the last two years of high school, I was like madly obsessed about running and into college. And then my freshman year, at the end of my freshman year, I pulled out my old camera to photograph a, uh, a, a woman that I was trying to date. <laughs> <laughs> hey, know, whatever it takes. Tip, yeah. Hey, baby. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and uh, I ended up starting to, to like, whoa, this is really fun again. And so it was like the finals week of school. Yeah. So this was 1979. And I remember going into the library at Ripon College where I was a student. And they got the new arrivals shelf. And Photojournalism Five was on. Oh, the Ken Cobra book? The, no, was this, this was University of Missouri did it. They printed it. It was the most beautifully printed graveyard book. Wow. It was large size. It was larger than anyone that had ever been done. Probably the most expensive one that they ever printed. That's why they never did it again. David Burnett's photo from Iran of the woman. I have that print. With looking through the binoculars was yes. on the cover. Yeah. That photograph literally stopped me in my tracks. And this is like right in the middle of finals weeks week. And I was studying for finals. Yeah. And I stopped, went over, picked up the book. And for two hours, all I did was look through it. And I was like, I want to do this. Interesting. Yeah. Amy, has, I should say that I don't have that print. Amy got that print from Burnett that years print ago. From David. Yeah, it's a it's a really remarkable photo. For those of you who don't know, David Burnett, who's an American photographer, I actually interviewed him on this series a few months ago. He was in Iran during the revolution in 79, 78, 78, 79. And um, he made this picture of a woman. It's a, it's a sea of women who are all wearing their, their headscarves. And one of them is turning around and looking back towards the photographer with a pair of binoculars. And it's just this like, really remarkable frame. 
So your David Burnett was my Larry Burroughs, was the hilltop after the battle where the white Marine is on the left walking towards the injured. I want to say, no, it's or maybe it's, a, it's reversed. There's a white Marine and a black Marine, and they're about to embrace each other after this firefight. And it's one of the Larry Burroughs photos. It's in color. And I saw Back that. Back when color was probably ISO 12. Oh, it was just, and it's like, it's that 60s color look. And I, but I, what I remember seeing was the, the race of the, the, obviously there were, something had caused these two guys, like in my head that like, okay, there's a white Marine and a black Marine. And to see them come together, it made me feel in a way I had never felt before. And I just stopped and I was like, I, I, don't, I didn't even know how to deal with it, but I just made the realization it's, it's, it stuck with me. And then when the camera became a part of my life, I was like, that's how I want to make people feel. I want them to feel that same way. Not that I ever accomplished that, but in theory. So when you decided, what was the first thing you did when you said, okay, this is what I want to do for a living besides take, finish your finals and move on. Yeah. Um, I realized I did, I mean, I, I wouldn't say it was like a bolt of lightning of inspiration of knowing it was back pre-internet days when you had to really go to the library and start doing research and yeah, it was cool. Though. You know, yeah, it was fun. It was a totally different pace and things, but I, I realized that if I wanted to become a photographer, well, first I ended up in Chicago in the, the fall semester of my junior year, so that would have been 1980, and I was on an off-campus program, much like most students go to abroad. I went into the country because I was from, a, or into the city, I was from a small town of about 7,000 people and I went to Chicago. So it wasn't that far away, but it was like yeah. a million miles away. Sure. And I lived on the city and I remember having a real clear and conscious decision after the three, three uh, week mark and I said, I am gonna have a great experience with this. Because up until that time, I was kind of fearful of the city and I, re I realized that was no way to spend the next three months. Yeah. But even before I went to there, there was a article published on a magazine that's no longer in print called Wisconsin Photographer, and it did a big, big promo on John H. White of the Chicago oh, yeah. Sun-Times. Yeah. And when I saw it, I said, I know I'm going to be down there, and I know I want to meet this guy, because I loved the photos. I loved his heart, his empathy. I loved his, his yeah. personality, which came through in the story. And I thought, i got to meet this guy. So literally, the day the phone got turned on in our apartment, yeah. I called... Three, two, one, three thousand. I can still hear it in my head. That's the Chicago <laughs> Sun Times main switchboard exchange. And then I asked for the photo lab, and all of a sudden, John picked up the phone. And if oh anybody knows God. John, you know he's never around. And for him to actually pick up the phone call was yeah. like, like the a hand of, of God, yeah. you know. And so we ended up getting to meeting, and we we had lunch planned, and we canceled. We had lunch planned, we canceled because of his assignments. Yeah. Finally, two weeks later, we got together at this little Burger King right by my apartment, not far from downtown. And I showed him my portfolio and told him who I was and we met and shared food. But that night, his class at Columbia College started. He would teach a class one night a week from 7 p.m. till 10 o'clock and then it would carry on later. And he said, why don't you come and sit in on my class? And I go, do you mean that? And he goes, yeah. So he let me audit his class, so like a dork. Yeah. I, I sat in there and <laughs> and I would go from seven till ten and then the the thing that was the totally unexpected part of it was that many of John's previous students at ten o'clock would come back to Columbia College and then they would all kind of caravan over to Billy Goats. Oh yeah. That's when the real learning That's starts. That's when the real learning happened. So we would go to the goats and we just 
I'm still friends with people from that class. Did you get hammered? No, because I didn't drink. Okay, just checking. But, but I remember being in there and seeing Mike Royko on a bar stool. Mike Royko, Mike F and Royko. Yeah. And I've got photos of him and John, you know, still in my archive in black and white. And I remember one night at the end of, near the end of my time there that semester, and we had literally gone to Billy Goat's and closed it. Then we went to another restaurant and got breakfast. And so I'm rolling into my apartment at about four in the morning, <laughs> and I am just stoked, jacked, jacked on caffeine, because <laughs> you know, I was drinking Diet Coke or Tab or something. And I mean, I was like, ah. I couldn't sleep, man. My head was spinning, and I, I knew right then and there that if I wanted to be a news photographer, this, I made that decision that that's what I wanted to do. And it was because of John's inspiration. And I ended up selling all my Olympus gear that I had accrued. <sighs> Turning your back on the big O. Yeah, and then getting an icon. Of course. Because yeah. no self-respecting photojournalist would use anything but Nikon. Oh, of course. Back What'd then. you get, F2? An F2A. Yeah, yeah, I used one. Those are beautiful. Yeah, they were. It's probably still You can also working. use it to lift your car if you need to. Yeah, or yeah. pound nails. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now, there's something interesting, <clears throat> what you just said, which is, again, a tangent here. But So you worked in papers a lot longer than I did. But there was this, I don't know if this happened to you, but when you work at the paper, I never truly, whether it was 12 midnight or 12 noon, I never was completely relaxed. No. There was always that idea that something is happening somewhere and I should be there. Right. How... How much of a, I mean, and that is both an addiction and a horrible it's a thing curse to have. Too. It's it a is. blessing and a curse. It is. Because the thing is, is I, growing up, I never wanted to have a job that felt like a job. I mean, I literally worked in a factory the summer between my senior year in high school and freshman year in college. I was assembling hydraulic jacks. Oh, and horrible. It was a great job, quote unquote. And it was. And yeah. if the only thing that was really great about it was made me realize there is no place in my world for that. There's no way I could survive it. <laughs> yeah. I just, I, I knew yeah. it's like, I have got to go to college to get the hell out of there. Yeah. Cause I, I, I would go mad. I mean, I don't know how any, I mean, there's literally people that I know that I went to high school that are still working in that factory. And it's like, this is, we're talking 30 plus years and yeah. God love them, but I could never have done it. And I knew I couldn't do it. I mean, physically I could do it, but mentally it would, would have driven me mad. Yeah, it's weird. I think that there's a there's a strength that those people have that I don't have. And then I think that there's a strength that we have that they, they probably have, but they don't necessarily want to access. That's maybe about, um, it's about n not having a sure thing. It's about chance. It's right. about risk. And oh. some people, you know, like it's, uh, sometimes people say, you know, like, oh, I, I don't want to work at a, at a camera shop. And I'm like, well, there's an upside and a downside to that. The, the downside is that you, you're the same place every day, getting a lot of the same questions. The upside is you know what you, when you leave at five o'clock, you can you're leave. Yeah. At the paper, I worked the three to 11 shift. And the, the joke was, you know, if it happened after, it would basically take a UFO landing on City Hall to get in the paper after like nine o'clock or whatever. So there was a lot I of... I don't even think they'd rip open A1 for that. <laughs> 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 That's going to be buried in the A section in black and white. <laughs> but but even, even working at three o'clock, the second I woke up in the morning, I was like, I better go find some wild art. I better go find a feature. I better, maybe I should have a story going. It, there was, it was relentless. And, and there was a part of that I loved, but then... When it went away, you kind of feel this like deflation of like, holy shit, I was under like stress. And I remember it's it's PTSD almost. It, it, it is not, it's a, not to the extent of a military or a or a um, 
a police officer or firefighter, but there's a certain amount of that, like that, that, that sort of artificial edginess, edginess. Of, and so this was the, the equipment they gave me on day one at the paper as an intern. Mostly, most of it was broken, which I didn't know until I got in the field and tried to use it. <sighs> I think I know who gave it to you. <laughs> yes. Yes, he did. He's the one who gave it to me. And so I remember I was on a panel last week Make in LA. <laughs> was, we'll, we'll get to what he's talking about here in a second. So I was on a panel in LA last week about photojournalism career path and how the fact is that I'm, I sort of still do they're photography. Still, you're still trying to sell that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, we were talking about, uh, you know, this the sort of stress of these environments. And I think it's, it's a, it, it is a weird sort of blessing and a curse to go through that, that kind of thing. But it's um, when, when you, you started at the newspaper and you basically have transitioned many, many times. But the, uh, the career path that I was talking about was freelance at the paper or work for the paper, then start freelancing for editorial, a little bit on the sides. And then the ultimate goal is you quit the paper and you go magazines full time, which doesn't happen anymore because that route doesn't really exist that much anymore. But was that part of your? That was totally my strategy because I always thought that there was a pecking order. There was newspapers, then there was magazines, and then there was books and agency work and things like that where you were at a much higher echelon in terms of how you were perceived, yeah. not only by your peers, but also in the industry and what you would receive from it. But then in 97, while I was still at the newspaper, I see, I'd always had this dream to work for Sports Illustrated, and I kind of put that dream aside. Why them? I just love sports, and I really thought that they were the pinnacle. No matter what I was doing at the newspaper, yeah. I always looked to what I considered to be the pinnacle. So if I was doing a documentary project, I would look at Geographic, or right. I would look at Life Magazine, or whomever was Magnum, yeah. whomever was doing the great best. storytelling. If I was on this kind of jag where I was doing medium format lit portraits, I wanted them to be like Fortune Magazine quality. I wanted yeah. them to be look, look just like magazine quality, because they were always my benchmark. And with sports, which I literally loved since I was first got into photography, is some of the first things I ever photographed was sports. Yeah, me too. I just loved it from a technical challenge, but also because I love athletics and there's beauty and art in it. But I always said Sports Illustrated is the pinnacle. And yeah, that's and so when I was in college, I was in communication with Andy Haight, you know, from yeah. Sports Illustrated. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, he was very encouraging to me as a kid from college that he didn't know from yeah. anyone, but he was very encouraging to me because I saw that here was a young guy. He was a couple years older than me doing this and I thought wow he's really good and I really want to do something like that but I'd put that dream aside for almost 15 years and in 37 when I turned 37 it was really funny because the newspaper had gone through a lot of turmoil right around that time in 96 yeah the, this, uh, this was sort of at the the not, end of the the beginning of the end of newspapers yeah, I think yeah yeah and so the gazette in Phoenix, which so was our I, competing paper, but they worked but they out were of the sister same pub, building. Sister publications. Yeah. They closed the morning, the afternoon paper, which was like yeah, a paper that should have been closed probably twenty years before, but it was kept alive because of Mrs. Pulliam, who loved the Gazette and the afternoon paper. Well, that meant the paper staffs would merge, and therefore people were going to lose their jobs. And I was like, I I never want to see anybody have to go through that because I know how it's horrible it was. Yeah. And I realized, hmm. These people own me, and if I don't do something, they're going to continue to do that. And so I needed to have yeah. some kind of an escape plan. Sure. 
So I kind of really tapped into that old dream and I thought, yeah, you know, I really want to do this work for SI with portraiture, but also with sports too. But I wasn't kind of really doing a lot of medium format portraiture and I thought that might be my ticket out. And I did a lot of work for them, but I also realized the writing was on the wall with those guys well, too. No, it wasn't so much that it, because that eventually has come to pass. Yeah, yeah. But I just realized that that wasn't a life I wanted to live. I didn't want to be waiting for somebody from New York to call me in Phoenix yeah. to go do a $450 assignment, Yeah. which was a lot more, um, that was a little bit more scary, scary in terms of, and I, and I just thought, I didn't have that ability to kind of be with them like on a daily basis, like I was like at a, a newspaper, yeah. like a staffer where you get to yeah. know people and they know you and they see you every day. So you're never out of mind. Right. And they don't forget about you. Whereas right. I thought it would be really easy for you to be forgotten being on the West coast, especially not even LA. Oh yeah. Phoenix. But I, the good thing about that was, is I realized a dream. My first assignment was on Pat Tillman and it ran as a, two-page yep. double truck. He was up in the lights above the stadium. And, and yeah, that's, that's a great pick. Thanks. Yeah. And that photo is going to be in a documentary on NFL Films running at the end of this month. So it's been a, an amazing, uh, that was an amazing experience. Yeah. But I also realized that that's not the life I wanted to lead. So something, uh, uh, the question of ethics came up last week on this panel. And people were talking about ethics and setting up photographs and stuff. And I, I didn't get a chance to answer the question, but it really made me think back to a few things. The, the newspaper to me, so I, I went to University of Texas, got a degree in photojournalism, but I really had no idea what I was doing until I got to the paper. And I got to the paper and I thought it would be this really mellow thing. Now, I looked for a year for an internship and it was like crickets. This was sort of the beginning of the time when maybe people started to think, I don't, you know, there's no need to respond to anyone. So you'd send things in the mail phone calls, there was no email, but there was just nothing for a year. And I was like installing hot tubs and doing all kinds of terrible jobs. And then I got this internship at, in Phoenix and <clears throat> it's really where I learned how to be a photographer because Mike Spector, who was the photo editor at the time, I think he looked at me and said... With pity. Yeah, <laughs> definitely with pity. But like, you know, he looked at me and thought, he's, he's pretty normal and his pictures are in focus and he's gung-ho. So like, just give him everything that comes along. And I was like, you know, you know what it's like on a daily basis. You could shoot a fire, a funeral, a press conference, whatever. But I was thinking about the ethical question and setting up photographs. And I realized very quickly doing work on my on the side on my own, I had seen photographers do some really sketchy things. And I'm like, okay, you've got some people who are on the up and up and you got others who are gonna do anything they can to get photographs. I saw photographers pay people for photos. I saw them pay to keep other photographers out of areas. I saw all kinds of stuff. But the ethical thing, I remember having a conversation with a photographer there and I was driving down the road and Meister called me on the phone and said, we need a feature picture by 3 p.m. And if you don't get one, don't bother coming back to the paper. And I had just started and I had this like this Vietnam era cell phone that didn't work and a pager that would they would always page me with 911. <laughs> so my heart rate would just spike. And I remember Dave Nelson telling me, hey, man, it's summer in Phoenix. It's 115. Nobody goes outside. Feature pictures are a nightmare to get. And so it's like 2.45, he says, you got 15 minutes to make this picture, and now I'm about to stroke out in my car, and I'm driving down the road in a, in a neighborhood going way too fast, and I'm literally punching the, the roof of, my, of the car because I'm so pissed off and like freaked out. 
And I remembered having a conversation with another photographer about this fine line of ethics. Like, say you're on deadline, and, you, and, and you're looking for a feature picture, and there's a pool full of kids, and you go up to, and you can't go to those kids and say, hey, everybody get out of the pool and then jump in at the same time and set up a photograph. But you could sort of hint your way along at that, like, boy, how amazing would it be to have a photo like that? And then two and, the kids put two and two together, and they, and they do it. And then you technically you're not setting it up, but like you you're are. You're leading the witness. Yeah, you're leading the witness. You're doing that. So when you got into the, hot and heavy into the newspaper world, Chicago was like the first battleground really, right? Well, Milwaukee actually as Milwaukee. an intern. Yeah. So how do, what was that process like for you of, one, learning on the job rapid fire, and yeah. two, have you ever been in a situation where you're like, this is a little, I'm, I'm walking the line here. There, the thing is, is each newspaper had its kind of like psychology. Like Milwaukee came from a tradition of they were the first newspaper to run color in the country. So they... Jesus, the, really? Yeah. They were like back, and that was back in the early 60s. And the bucks are terrible every year. Yeah. Okay, go ahead. They used to be good. Lou Alcindor was Yeah, there. but that was 150 72. years ago. It was like dirt um, court back then. Yeah. But they would they would have an expectation of lighting things. So okay. they would, so that really kind of forced you to raise your technical bar. Plus you were processing for three or four assignments. Usually if I worked the night shift, so I would come back with 12 to 15 rolls of film. You always shot a lot of film. By I the was way. heavy handed, man. Yeah. Yeah. And I would have to process it, edit it and print it and caption it. And I usually would, my shift would end at 10 o'clock, but I would almost always be there till one or two because I just had so much work to do, but it was great. I was really, was it color or black and white film? It was mostly black and white, but some color, but mostly wing Lynch or hit by hand process, uh, hand processing. And then they had an Ilford machine that would process your prints. So that was nice. Nice. So they'd come out dry, a little warm heaven, but then Chicago was a different place, 90 miles away, but a world of difference. They didn't care as much about lighting unless you were one of the studio photographers. They okay. had very separate. Because they had a bigger staff. They had a much bigger staff that was a holdover from World War II. When photographers went off to war, Colonel McCormick replaced them, didn't have the heart to let them go after the war was over, so the staff was just big. You found that at a lot of big cities like Miami, like L.A. Chicago Tribune was no different. They had like huge numbers of photographers. Okay. But they were less concerned about the tech- technology or the technique, rather, of lighting on assignments. They were like, you know, flash just, for cash, baby, get yeah, it done. Just get it done. Get it, get it in. But um, when I went to D.C. for them, it was a different ballgame altogether because you were working under very controlled environments. Typically. So you were still working for the Chicago Tribune, but you took up the, the post in Washington, D.C. to yeah. work on Capitol Hill. Right. Yeah. Politics, which at that time was like a super hot assignment. It was. And it was something that. When I look back on it now, I think, oh my gosh, why did they, how did they send me? Because, well, frankly, I think they, they were pretty much, they had to send me because they needed to staff it and they didn't really have anybody that they wanted to send. And I volunteered and they were like, okay, we'll send them. And if we have to, we'll pull them out. (laughs) Because you just didn't know what you're doing? I had no idea. I mean, I was in so far over my head, but it was the kind of thing that you do when you're 25. Sure. You say, that's okay. I remember one of the older lab techs. We were underneath the, the parking garage at the Tribune. We had come back from Billy Goats, and it was like the day before I was going to leave. And he goes, don't come back. But he meant that in a good way. Yeah, he goes, stick it out. He goes, just don't come back. And I realized that 
he was just trying basically to help me just break free because he knew I wanted to do more things than just work at a newspaper. It was very easy to stay at a newspaper. Sure. <clears throat> because you were paid a fairly good salary. Yep. Good benefits. Yep. It wasn't, you could usually, you know, buy a house with it. Yeah. But it wasn't enough to make you like. Comfy. Free. Yeah. Or wealthy. Well, U- if, if you won clips, you'd get a free enchilada dinner. Ooh, yes, sir. Yeah. Don't forget that. Yes, sir. Um, but it was like the kind of, the, we used to call it the, the golden handcuffs or the velvet coffin. Velvet coffin. Yeah, sure. And that's kind of what it, what it was. And it was a great experience. I mean, I, I still, to this day, say that newspaper photography training is the best photography training because you are going to get two or three assignments a day, five days a week, yeah, with a variety of things that you have to do. And you have to make great photos and you have to deliver. And back to your question about the pressure that that yeah. Yeah. changes. I've always believed that wherever people gather, there's a potential for good photos. And I look at photos as moments and portraits. And whenever I've gotten into trouble in the past, it's when I blurred those lines. But now if it, what really is clear to me that there's a place for a portrait, an obvious portrait in yeah. a newspaper. Sure. But there's also a place for real moments. And I don't think if you're trying to portray reality or real moments in a newspaper situation, you should do anything to really influence influence it. You are going to influence by your mere presence. Yeah. But I don't think you need to encourage it anymore. And you're going to also influence the look of the photograph by lens selection, by sensor size, sure. you know, all Strokes, that stuff. All that. Yep. Everything's going to have that effect. You're making an artistic interpretation of it. But I try to be as third-person omniscient as I could be in real moment situations whenever possible and have portrait sessions be as clear as possible. Okay. So it helped me kind of do it. And now I always think of photography now, even though I do weddings and portraits now, yeah. I think of it as moments, portraits, and post-production. Those are the three key components. Well, it's pretty funny that you mentioned portraits <clears throat> and weddings because that's the uh, the next thing I was going to ask about. So mm-hmm. uh, I told this story last week as well that um, I was in, only in newspapers for a short time, and then I freelanced magazine stuff for five years, and then I got a job for Kodak, and I went to uh, I went to Santa Fe Workshops, took a Chris Rainier class, and Phyllis Lane was in the class, and Phyllis looked at my work and said, you know, you could be make you could be shooting weddings. And I was like, in my photojournalism brain, I was like, no way in hell I'm going to do weddings. We don't do that. We don't do that kind of thing. <laughs> I am an artist. And uh, and yeah, she was superior. like, she was like, hey, let me explain to you what this industry is like. Well, this was 99. It was pre-wedding bubble, pre-anyone in the super sort of marketing marketing world to land. And so she convinced me to do this, and I made the jump and got into weddings. You did a similar thing, basically newspaper to magazines. Unbeknownst to me, that you were doing this. We were doing these these parallel things at the same time. How did that happen? Well, it was funny because in two thousand, I had turned forty. The world had survived. Yeah, you were depressed. No, I wasn't depressed. I mean, I was before I turned forty, but then afterwards, I was like, "Oh, I survived, so I'm okay." Okay. But Y two K, everything's good. Everything's good. I don't have to tap into my survivalist food. <laughs> Stand down. <laughs> yeah. Stand down. DEFCON 1. Yeah. <laughs> and I started, a friend, a couple friends of mine asked me to photograph their wedding. So one was in spring, uh-huh. and then another one was in September, and then a third one was in October. And each time I did it, I had more and more fun at them, and I realized, wait a minute. Yeah. This wait, is exactly. <laughs> this is counterintuitive. What's this happening? Is, this is, you know, because I had, in the 90s, in, I kind of, looked at it and I thought, well, maybe, you know, I heard about Dennis Reggie and I thought, well, maybe yeah. there's a place for me. But that, then I didn't think that there was. 
<clears throat> so I re reapproached it in 2000, and I realized, wait a minute, everything we always wanted in newspapers was access, emotion, storytelling, but mostly access. Yeah. People who wanted us to be there. To uh, yeah. Us. There's nothing better. <clears throat> and that's what we get at weddings. And I also started to realize that the photos that I liked the most were photographs that were made with a 35 or a 50 yep. almost all the time. Yep. Those were the ones that I'd put on the wall. And so I could see that I could make those photos at weddings and people loved them. I loved being a witness to the experience. <clears throat> and then on the third wedding, I met my wife. Well, there's that. So she was the maid of honor, and I was photographing. A and who friend. was the photographer there? Uh, I was the photographer. <laughs> I was the official photographer, kind of a, you know, kind of like a, a, a busman's holiday for my friend. I was just doing it. And then it more you met a, you met the the better the crazy half. South African, yeah. Yeah, and then it's just been a then, wreck since then. Then I, then, I, then I realized. So we got married a year later. And, and I, I shot the wedding. Yeah, you did. You and your wife. Yeah. And it's 15 years later, and I realized that after that wedding, we so we got married in October, and on Christmas Eve, we were going to, to Mass, and I looked over at my wife, and I said, what would you think if we sold our house in Phoenix and moved? And she was, like, kind of surprised. <laughs> She's like, what? <laughs> and she goes, yeah, let's do it, because, I mean, hell, she just moved around the country, around the world, so yeah. what's another... Yeah, another couple hundred miles. Yeah, well, big deal. <laughs> so then we figured, well, she was in advertising, so she could now work because she had her, her green card. And she, we looked at San Francisco, L.A., New York, and Chicago. We wanted to go to the big markets for advertising. Yeah. And then New York, we ruled that out because it was just New York. And it's cold. Cold. Yeah. Chicago. It's cold. I'd lived there before, and as much as I loved it, I didn't want to go through winter again. And San Francisco was a little cold. Yeah. And pricier and we said well let's just do LA and and LA had always scared me and it was one of those cities that even New York didn't scare me like LA did because LA was just like this massive Mega expansive yeah. place just huge sprawling and I, I never wanted to have a city do that to me I wanted to own it in a way yeah. so I said let's go to LA and I mean I was scared shitless because I thought what am I going to do it was like right after 9-11 the yeah. economy was in the crapper Nikki didn't have a job. I didn't have a job. I wasn't going to go from one newspaper job to another. They weren't going to hire me, and I didn't want him. Yeah. And, in fact, I had done a lot of work for time and people yeah. in Phoenix. And I remember we were on. We had just moved, and we didn't tell anybody. And it was, the reason we didn't tell anybody wasn't to be jerks. Yeah. was because I was afraid I was going to get talked out of it. Yeah. So I literally gave my notice a week before we moved, which, I mean, I, I'm apologizing publicly to Mike Meister, who I love dearly and who was always so gracious to me. But I did, I only, the only reason I did it wasn't to be a dick. It was because I just felt I was going to get talked out of it. So yeah. I had to just you had to cut my losses. Clean break. Clean break. Hi, and, Meister. You'll get over it. <laughs> if you haven't gotten over it hey. by now, you will get over it. Show me a weather shot. <laughs> <laughs> but... Uh, we left, and we, we were living with Nick, at Nikki's um, cousin's place in Huntington Harbor. They were in South Africa for four weeks, and they let us house it, which oh, was like the perfect nice. landing pad. Yeah, you're like, I can live here. And I remember being there on day two of our adventure. Martha Bardak from Time, Time Magazine. Calls me. <laughs> Hi, Martha. And she goes, hey, Paul, 
uh, can you go, can you do this assignment on McCain and Phoenix? And I go, Martha, I've been <laughs> meaning to tell you something, but I moved yeah. to LA. Yeah. And she goes, oh, well now I can't use you. <laughs> so I was like, yeah. but I understand. I mean, you needed somebody there, but yeah, it was, it was really hard because I felt like I'd kind of like severed my lifeline in a way because editorial was my lifeline and I came yeah. there with virtually well, no work. And you're in a much bigger pond. There's a lot of other people. See, that's the thing when I started freelancing. So when I, I had I, my original thing at the paper was three month internship. But then when the three months was over, Spectre said to me, you, we don't want you to leave, but we can't hire you. So will, will you stay around as an unofficial part of the staff? And I said, okay. So I stayed a year and a half. <laughs> yeah. Then I left and then I was in Just Texas. Just try to get me out of here. And then I went to like Guatemala. And then uh, Dave Nelson, who was photo editing at the time, called me and said, you know, we have a ton of freelance work and there's nobody here. So like if you came here, you could get all this freelance work. So I went back to Phoenix. And then <clears throat> after I did that for a while, then I was like, you know, I want to do the magazine thing and move. But it is, you have to, you have to just cut off what it is you're doing and go for it. But Phoenix was easy for me because there was no one there. And so the freelance work was coming in all the time. The second I went to Southern California, it was just basically over because the drought, because there were already so many people there. And I went to see Martha in, in LA and um, also the woman who was the People magazine editor. She was a German woman. I can't remember right now. Super cool. But man, it was like, few and few and far between because why would they hire me when they'd been working with people there for 20, 30 years? But, but for me, it was, it was the realization and it was acknowledging the choice that I made that edit my, my life as an editorial photographer was over. So it was 19 years. It was a great ride. I loved it. I'm proud of it. I think I did a lot of great work. Well, I have another question. Yeah. So when I, at the end of my five years of freelancing, I'm living in, I think I was in Laguna at the time. I'd met Amy, we're living in Laguna, just getting ready, getting close to moving to LA. And when I, I took a job with Kodak and right. I took the job at Kodak because I realized that I only wanted to do my own projects. I didn't want to shoot for other people anymore because the stuff I was shooting was just not good. At the end of the, at the end of 1996, I looked at my portfolio and the only thing that was interesting to me was the trip to Cambodia, which I had done on my own. And all the assignment work, I was like, I have no relationship to this at all. So Kodak comes looking. I said, yes, I'll take this job. I do the Kodak job for four years, and I sold everything except an M6 and a 35. I traded a guy an old Canon 70 to 200 for an M6 and a 35, straight up. What a deal. I know, totally. I t and I tried to talk him out of it, but he was obsessed with getting the Canon lens for God knows what reason. Press conferences. <laughs> <laughs> But at the end of four years, I was like, of shooting on my own while working for Kodak, I was like, oh, now I know the photographer I really am. I'm this long-term black and white 35, 35 millimeter, 50 millimeter photographer. That's who I want to be. At the end of 19 years for you as an editorial person, you've done the newspapers multiple, you've done the DC thing, you've done magazines, you've done editorial. Who were you as, if left to your own devices any, at that time, who were you? I was anybody I had to be. I mean, I was, I could do it all and that's the good thing about it, but it was also the bad also thing. Also the bad thing. And that's what I'm getting at here is you're, you were a jack of all trades at that point, which is a great skill to have because you can shoot anything. But ultimately I think underneath there, there's that part of you that's always searching for like, who, who am I here? Well, I've always felt like at the core, I'm a storyteller. That's no matter what I do, whether it's a wedding and now I don't, I don't get so f fussed over, well, am I a portrait photographer? Cause no matter what I have the lens up to my eye for, I want to make a great photo yeah. and I want to get into the heart and soul of the person that I'm photographing. I want to make a photograph that combines light gesture, you know, geometry and all that stuff to make a photograph that makes people feel. 
And it's like my buddy Ken said, I want to make photographs that I want to look at. Jureski? Yeah. And I always, I never forgot that. That was from 1987 when he was there for Iran-Contra. And I was like, that's a really great way to say it. And it's so true. And, I, and frankly, I mean, I have great pride in the work I do now. I've finally come to kind of grips and terms with the fact that, yeah, I'm a wedding photographer and I'm a portrait photographer, but I'm at the core a photographer. I want to shoot great photographs of my kid playing yeah. softball. I want to make great photographs of the people that I photograph as families. And I mean, I don't want to hold back anything. Yeah. If I know how to light them as I would do it for a magazine assignment, I'll do it because I know how to do it. I'm really confident yeah. in my skills. I'm always looking for new ways to do things better. That's why I switched to Sony. And We're and, going to talk about that in a minute. But the, the, the thing about you is you have this ability. You're one of these really strange creatures that you do have the ability to shoot just about anything. Like if I had any assignment that came to me today that I would said, no, I don't want to do that, I could easily turn around no matter what it is and say, you should call Paul Giroux. I can't say that with a lot of other photographers, but with you I can. But it also translates to the back end because I've seen the work that you do on software and on color and on printing, and it is like impeccable, that stuff. So that's a weird brain that maybe, and it goes back to being the Cub Scout. It's that brain that like looks at all sides of the equation. I am certainly nowhere near that. There's a million things that I would never be able to go and shoot, and there, I suck at software, and my color sucks, but I you know, find inspiration in, in other things. But that, that's a pretty rare thing. You and I went from the newspapers to the magazines to the weddings at basically the similar time. The you were, time. You were into the newspapers before me, but we also then went into portraiture, and I landed in portraiture because my neighbor across the street brought her two daughters over and said, do you photograph kids? And I said, no. And she said, I'm leaving them here and left. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, uh, and they were little at the time. And I was like, oh, uh, what am I going to do now? And so I grabbed my Leica and I just started like doing a little mini documentary of these girls. And then her, their mother saw the work and said, this looks really different and started telling her friends. And within six months, I was shooting kids like full time. So. When people ask me now, especially last week, I'm on this photojournalism panel, a lot of younger photographers come up and say, look, I want to be a photojournalist, which I find really interesting these days because everything is stacked against them. But at the same time, I was like, you don't need to be a photojournalist to be a photojournalist. So if you want to tell stories, get a job on the side that pays you to allow you to do the projects you want to do on your own. And I tell people portrait photography is actually not a bad place to start. I would never, ever... I do a wedding again. I don't think I'm physically capable of it. The portraiture is the one part of working photography that I miss because of the relationship I had with the kids. And I didn't realize it even at the time I was doing it, how important it was to me until it went away. And the parents would call, Hey, you know, you're doing this. And I'm like, look, I don't, I'm not a photographer anymore. And that's the one thing I miss. But what was it about children's portraits in particular? Again, it's a, Coming from photojournalism, you, me coming from photojournalism, these were all the things that we were told like, oh, you never want to do that. Never do that. You're a loser. If you shoot weddings, you are a complete mutant if you, you shoot weddings. You've got a bad tuxedo and a white uh, blue powder, ruffle tux blue and just hammered, hitting on the bridesmaids. Yeah. F8, Hasselblad, <laughs> light them up. That's nuke it. Em. Nuke them. And, but here we are in weddings. Yeah. We go through sort of that wedding bubble where it just went from zero to 60 or zero to nasty in 6.2 seconds. And then we go into portraiture. Uh, what was that like for you? Well, it came about about the time I had my, my first child, uh, Kate, who's now going to be 11. Oh, jeez, I can't believe that. I know. And I realized that I had access to a really 
where I live is is yeah, Kid Central. Kid Central, fifteen thousand homes, almost all are required by law to have children, at least one. <laughs> <laughs> Not Look, really. Look, whatever it takes. Yeah, but I had this access to this, thing. and then it it was in two thousand seven that I realized the real critical distinction about portrait photography that I never got. Yeah. When I first started, yeah. when I left newspapers in two thousand two, I had a totally different perception of new of. Portraiture. Portraiture. I thought, oh, it should be like a wedding. People will pay you a high fee to do weddings, and then you'll give them the files. Well, it's a different totally psychology. Different. And the thing about weddings is that people know they've lived their whole lives looking forward to a wedding. They've planned for it for over a year. They know on the calendar that their friends and family are going to be there. It's a different experience for them. It's a yeah. once-in-a-lifetime event. Whereas, really, portraiture. portraiture is too, but they don't get it because it's... One of those things that changes slowly. Sure. But it is a once-in-a-lifetime event to have a portrait session because your yeah, because kids are you're never going to be changed That's right. that same way. Ever That day will never be the same. But you have to give people a reason to do a portrait, and you have to minimize a barrier to entry. So therefore, for me, the high session fee with the files didn't work, but a very low session fee, and in fact... I often don't charge a session fee for my kids' project. In fact, that's a charity donation. So there's a triple win. There's a win for the charity. They get yeah. $100 yeah. for each session. We don't charge our normal $300 session fee. It's a win for the family because now they've decided they're going to do a session. And it's a win for us because we have the opportunity to put to, the work in the book. To put the work in the book, but also to put the work in front of them that they have to buy. Okay, so let me love. let me just back up here and give you a little background. So we we both shot weddings in late '90s, early 2000s. You're still doing weddings, yeah. and then we sort of both started two shooting. this weekend, actually. Oh, nice! Yeah. We started shooting portraits of kids, and uh, like I said, me by accident. You had a much more uh, studied approach to the to the entering the field. And so over the years, you've we all did. Everybody changes their model of how they shoot, what they do, what they provide, the kind of equipment you're using, the prints you're giving, the books you're making, etc. Um, but before we get into that, what you're talking about is every year you do a charity book called right. the, it's called the kids of the OC or the kids, kids of, of orange County, kids of orange County. Um, but before we talk about that specifically, let's talk about print in general, because right. it was 1995, I think when you bought an Epson EX photo printer, you were the first person I knew with a printer like that, which was the first real desktop inkjet printer you might as well have landed some sort of moon rock on the earth to photographers because no one really knew what to make of this stuff. But you and I, for whatever reason, looked at it. You bought the thing, and we looked at it and said, holy shit, this is, like, legitimate. You can make beautiful prints. You could make and books. You could make books. You could make prints. And we started portfolios. making portfolios. on yeah. the And they, we would put the prints out one at a time on the floor of your house and let them dry. They would start to color shift within, like, two weeks. They were turning magenta. <laughs> two weeks? More like two minutes. <laughs> The minute but, the ink dried. Oh, and by the way, I don't know what computer you were on, but it was r agonizingly slow. And I then, think it was a Duo two, 230 <laughs> or something Mac. And then the prints would take God knows how long for each print. So this was like, these were like late night sessions, and we would eat bad Mexican food and watch bad TV. We would, we would watch like the documentary on the Turnley Brothers that was on 60 Minutes. And we would do these prints and started pr laminating and binding these things. Those were, we were the first people I saw to ever do that. I'm yeah. sure there were other people in the world. We didn't, I didn't know them at the time. Yeah. But, and then I remember making a, a set of 10 
and sending them to German Geo and the Geographic and all these people, and they all wrote me back or called me or wrote letters and said, "This is the we haven't seen anything like this." So you going back to the darkroom era, print is a huge part of your life still today. Yeah. What is it about print for you? Because I have my own reasons why I love it so much. What is it? I've always felt that it's not a real photograph unless you can hold it in your hand. And one of the things that I do with my portraits are as I've adopted the model, the business and pricing model of a Kiwi photographer named Sue Bryce. Oh, yeah. I know that name. Sue's great. And I love what she's done for portrait photography. I love what she's done for print. Is she a Canon person? Yeah. She's an explorer. She's an explorer of life. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So Sue's awesome. And I've... This was a few years ago. I adopted her pricing, and instantly my average sale went up almost $1,000. Can I have some of that? Yeah. And part of it is the fact that it's about a print. Yeah. Every photograph she sells is a print, and it comes with a digital file. So everybody wants the digital, Yeah. but in 20 or 30 years, you're going to want the print. But, but what you're talking about here is you're talking about educating civilians about yeah. what it is because they yeah. may or may not be picking up they on that. They may not, and yeah. that's okay. I mean, I'm not yeah. – I'm, I think, you know, like we sometimes prejudge our, our clientele that they may not be our clients, and I'm guilty of it as the next yeah, person. me too thinking, ah, they're not my client if they can't get this. Well, maybe they just don't understand it, and maybe I need to be better at clearing up the confusion and selling it from the real reasons on an emotional level because the people who buy my work, it's an emotional thing. Yeah. And if I can get them to connect with their emotions that are associated with a photograph, they're more likely to want to have me do the photographs for them. Yeah. And if they don't, that's fine. But I'm, I mean, I'm really, really proud of the work I do. I think that, ironically, the work that I do now for people is going to live much longer than any work I ever did for journalism. Oh, I think so, for sure. Because these are photographs that are going to outlive me. I mean, if you go to anybody's home, there are photographs from three generations ago that are on their walls or on their mantles or on their dressers a photograph of the grandparents at their wedding day. These are big milestone events. The things that I used to have disdain for, weddings and kids photography, yeah. and portrait photography, are now the things that sustain my living. And, you know, like I realize now I was wrong. I was wrong. Oh, I was too. I was oh, yeah, flat sure. out arrogant and I was flat out wrong about what it was. But I also think that I've been able to access something that maybe I couldn't access when I was younger. The fact that this is a very fleeting time we're on this earth, and the yep. photos that we make for people are going to be treasured heirlooms. I did the math. My daughter, will, from 0 to 18, will be with us for 6,570 days. Jesus. That's all. That's too many. When you think... <laughs> <laughs> Some days it is. <laughs> when, when you think about 18 years, it seems like it's never going to get here, but when you think about it in terms of days... And it's 6,570 days from 0 to 18. Yeah. That's not a lot of days. Well, she's almost 11, right? I know. She's, yeah. When she became 9, I was like, she's halfway to college. Look, I, I was equally as arrogant because when Phyllis first said you should shoot weddings, my first thought was like the blue ruffle tux guy. And then, and I was like, and I was totally unprepared for how difficult a wedding was as well and how on your demand. game you have to be on. Like you have to be on it for 12 hours straight. But my wife's parents got married and they hired a photographer to do 3D and the whole wedding is on 3D glass plates that you look at through a viewer. Now for those of you who don't know, Google this because it's insane how good these things look and we still have them here in Costa Mesa. 
And I looked through this. So this was probably, you know, her parents were, were roughly the same age as mine. My mom's about 80 now. So this was shot probably, in you know. In the 50s. Yeah, in the 50s. This guy was shooting a Hasselblad. I'm guessing. It was a square negative. With, could have been a Rolly. Could have been a Rolly with a, with a direct strobe. Felt like it was on a pole of some kind. And he, the entire wedding in this box is probably 80 photographs. He nailed everything moments i'm talking about moments outside the church where this is not a staged moment where there are things literally in the air and this guy in one frame nailed this and i looked at those prints and i thought or those slides and i thought man this guy was good like really good like probably better than a lot of the people i worked with in photojournalism actually right and was a lot more skilled technically than these people so but the, the, what's interesting for me was that how many people, when I decided to shoot weddings, there were so many people that said, dude, what are you thinking? And then within the next 10 years. I wouldn't years, tell people. Well, I, I hit it. I had another photographer call me and say, you got to develop two websites because I can't tell anybody that it's you. Because if they see you're shooting weddings, you're d- immediately disqualified from any editorial work. And I remember thinking at that time, disqualify I was going to say at that time, I was like, well, who cares? Like it's not, they don't pay in their shitty assignments anyway. So let's get back to the print. Okay. So printing has obviously been in our blood. We came up at a, you, you were before me, but we came up where printing was an everyday part of what you did. So I, I rarely, if ever, talk about blurb on these interviews because I don't want people to think I'm shilling for blurb. But in your case in particular, you have done some things that really I haven't seen anyone else do. And when I look at the books that you've done with Blurb, the color is absolutely the best color I've seen in anybody's books. There's a couple of other people who do really phenomenal color as well. But tell us how you use, uh, with, the, with the Kids of OC book, tell us the story of that book and then, and then how you use it. That book was something that I learned from an Aussie photographer named Taro Sade. Okay. So it's ironic that a Kiwi and an Aussie have had more impact on my business post-journalism than anybody has ever had in my business. And give us the name of the guy again. Taro Taro. Sade, S-A-D-E. That's a cool name. Yeah, he's of Finnish descent. And so Taro was doing a countrywide seminar, and I remember getting the email, and it was like $177 to go to this. U.S. countrywide. U.S. countrywide. And he did it actually at South Coast Plaza, and I went to it. And I remember sitting in his seminar, and it was a day-long seminar with lunch, and I remember thinking... Oh, it was through tarot that I got the distinction about what, what a portrait, why people buy portraits as opposed to weddings. I had never figured that out. I was so, here I had five years of college, yeah. journalism degree. They never taught you any of this stuff. None. They had almost contempt for the fact that you have to make a living as a photographer. You were basically trained to be a wage slave when you were a journalism major. Not that that's bad, but now there's no places to get a wage from, or right. very few places. Yeah. But I digress. But the wedding and portrait worlds, the two worlds that I had the most utter contempt for, were <laughs> the only models that have survived the yeah, economy. Totally. And the only ones that actually told people how to make money in the business. So I thank them for that because they have allowed us to keep the roof over our heads. Well, even when I worked for Kodak Professional, Professional was broken into two sides, commercial and then portrait wedding. And we called it the portrait wedding weenies, right? This was before I was in that field, but I am a total weenie, so it fit. But the portrait wedding side was the side that was together and profitable and making money. The commercial side was the fancy one that everybody wanted to do events with and sponsor people, and it was a nightmare. Was... It was dis- literally disappearing on a daily basis. Yeah. While portrait and wedding, I looked over and I was like, those guys are profitable. 
they're like they have careers and lives and and health insurance and like all these things that the commercial side was like hit and miss. And the thing of it is, is the portrait wedding world has had to evolve, and it's still evolving. And people like Sue Bryce acknowledge that, and they're helping people to evolve. Yeah. And it's a constantly never-ending change game. So, you know, like the the photos that people make on their iPhones are great. I look at them like, good. You're appreciating photography. You're photographing your life. You're making those daily photographs. Yep. But when you want to be in the photographs, you can't do it on your iPhone. You've got to have me do it. So you shoot once a year, you do an open call for people. It goes out through the year. Okay, through the year that people can be a part of this book called The Kids of OC. And in essence, what it is, is it's a book that you do and then sell and the proceeds go to chalk. How it works is 100% of the session fee, which is $100 for this, goes to chalk. They write a check for $100 to To chalk. chalk I don't take any money. Which is Children's Hospital of Orange County. Right. That's in lieu of our normal $300 session fee, and we do a custom session for every client. That means a planning session. We do a session on location. It's not like a, a, a casting call, crank them out. Right, bang them through one at a time. Yeah, you're every, actually going not somewhere many making sessions. We're, real photos. We're, we're having a, a conversation about where we're going to do this. We talk about clothing. We talk about the feel that they're trying to achieve. We talk about what photos they want to replace on their walls, if they have a place in mind for them. I take give them suggestions about what to wear, what to bring. Then they come actually view the photographs. Now for a while, the longest time, they would view them on a large screen computer monitor or a projection or a big TV. But now what we're doing is, and this is something I got from Sue, is actually a reveal wall that shows prints. So people will actually come in and see finished prints. Yeah, that's awesome. That are matted, ready to go home. They're retouched. They're color enhanced. They're color corrected. They do are, you do all that stuff? I do it. I have a lab print them for me, but yeah. I do them and I, I, I that's use, the remarkable part is that you can do all that shit. Yeah. Yeah. And it is absolutely without fail. The most exciting thing that's happened to the photo- my photography business in the last 15 years, which is so ironic that going to print, going back to print Old school, which is which is really the best way of getting that point across to a client of what that actually means is when you walk in and see it in physical form on the wall ready to go. Well, another thing that I do from Sue is the folio box collection and what they are is six, 10 or 20 images. Okay. You put 20 mounted or yep. matted prints yep. into a, a custom made wooden box. Yeah. They have significance. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They are. Yeah. They are significant. This is, this is a true example of what happened. So I had a family come in, about a month ago to do a portrait session. They had bid on me at a charity auction to help their Catholic school. Yeah. They came in, the session was included as well as one print. Okay. They came in and saw the photographs and they bought six in addition to the one that they got, which is, that was a big step for them because I don't think they expected to love them. The parents of the husband called or contacted me two weeks later and said we'd like to see the photos all of them i said sure we scheduled a time for them to come in i put the seven photos that their kids had picked of the grandkids and the family on the wall and then showed them the slideshow that i do of all the photos and there was only 25 photos 30 photos not a lot yeah and then i showed them the folio box that had the rest they ended up buying it they bought the whole thing nice yeah and i mean that may have happened if they had only seen them on the screen, but it certainly did happen because they had them in their hands. They walked out 
with a box full of prints that night. Look, we're living now probably the second, third generation of people who've come up with the technology and the digital and the en endlessness of, of, of the visual content. And there's there's a certain school of thought that, that tells people that that's a great thing, is that the, just the volume is this wonderful thing. But in essence, if you come from the background that we have, you realize that within a shoot, there's a couple of gems, and then the rest of it is noise. It's filler. Yeah, and so you are basically clearing the noise out for them and saying, look, this is, you're putting preciousness back in the, it's in the visual. It's clearing it for me too, because I would have probably shown 50 or 60 photos on a slideshow. Yeah. And then they're confused. Oh, I like this. This way they look at them, they hold them, they see them. Then they see the slideshow to music and it's a very different emotional experience. So I would run into the same thing. I would go and people would start talking. They would ask how many photographs that I was gonna shoot. And I said, I would always say as, as few as possible. And then they would say, well, what does that mean? And I would say, because it's not about quantity. This is about me making for making a couple of things. And they would also say about like, how we're gonna get all the digital files and we wanna put stuff on Facebook. And I would tell people, I do not want my work on Facebook. Do not put it on there. And I would say, I am here for the wall. I am here to make the one or two images from this shoot that are gonna be on the wall that when the, the kid I'm photographing, when he has grandkids, that print is still gonna be there and still have meaning because it's, it's supposed to be good. I mean, these are only the best. So one of the reasons why I started to get out over time was that I was tired of fighting the fight of the, you know, the t technology and the social media and stuff. It's not going anywhere. And I was like, okay, I'm, you know, this education thing is burning me out. So, and I was ready to do, and I'm a, I'm, I can't keep my attention on any one thing for any length of time anyway. But let's just briefly back to the book. So the books that you've done, how many you, you've, you've done print on demand with a book three, four times? I've done four blur books. Uh, they're all print on demand, but they, the first first three were done with Taro's printer in Australia. Okay. So off, yeah. offset printed in Australia. Digital offset. And then one year locally offset. And then the last four years okay. have been blur books. And they're the books that I'm the most pleased with. Okay. Because I think the size is a little bit smaller. There's a couple things I wish that they had offered. Like I'd which, love to see which, them. Like what? Well, I'd like to see, see them offer a, a silk bookmark okay. inside the yeah. You can do that on a custom book, you know, oh, custom yeah. run, but right. it's not POD. Not, yeah. That's what I'd love to see. Um, I'd love to see them offer an option to do short run printing that has saddle stitch signatures glued a little bit more. Yeah. They're still great quality, but I think that would elevate them even more. So that, and, the, and the benefit of going, so when you did the first four years offset, you would do an offset run and get a shipment of books. Right. And then you were sort of on the hook for distributing and yeah. mailing and stuff. And now you don't have that shipment up front. You're doing POD. Now I, I just strictly do it on demand. Okay. Uh, and we, we don't do a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, it's gorgeous, man. I have, I have two, two of the four I have. Oh, do you? And okay. they're like, every time I look at the color in the books, I just think... Because, you know, anytime you do something, have a company like Blurb, the, and the range of clientele that we have is all over the place. And you have the range of skill is all over the place. So people have never calibrated a monitor, you know, sit down in a monitor, do a book, their color's off, and they go, Blurb sucks. And so you're gonna, always going to hear that. And then I see the books that you do, or even the books that I do, the color. I'm very happy with the color, but I see yours, and I'm like, this looks absolutely perfect. But that's a combination of, of things. You're very skilled with, with color and prepping files. Well, the thing is, is I look at the quality of the books now, and they're as, every bit as good on those POD blur books that I saw in the 90s that were all lithoed. Yeah. And to me, that's like, 
why wouldn't you take advantage of this? This is what I always dreamed of as having books. Same, well, when we were building books on your floor, I was like, "That's this is exactly what I dreamed yeah, of. This yeah. is the realization of a dream. That's, that's why I see 30-some years into my career, it is finally coming to, the real, uh, coming to the point where I've always wanted it to be. Some things I didn't know, some things I did know, like the book publishing and yeah. the, the availability of printing. See, for me, with the digital files, I love the fact that I shoot digital because as much as I loved the look of film, I yeah. love the fact that, I'm, that I don't have to worry about the cost of processing and film. I know there's other costs associated with and the, digital. And the time as well. The time, yeah. and that I can turn around these photos quicker but I also, for, for me, it's like if somebody asks, how many photos do you take? It's not how few I take. It's how few I show. But it's how many it takes to get the to photos get what you I need. want. Yeah. And that's the way I was when I shot film at the newspaper. If I needed 60 rolls of film, hell, I'd take 60 rolls of film. I oh, wouldn't Oh, I care. know. I was there. I saw it. Yeah. I witnessed that. Yeah. That. What you are know. you doing? Selling it? <laughs> <laughs> so, okay. Print, good. Books, Good. Through the years, when I first met you, going back to 93, I want to say you were a Canon photographer already. I was. And I was a Nikon guy, but during the time I had an internship, um, Canon came out with the EOS 1V and the A2, and I sold every single piece of Nikon equipment I I was there when you did that. Yeah, and I remember I went to photograph Mary Decker Slaney running the, I think, Phoenix 10K in the pouring rain with McIntyre. And I had two F4 Nikons that would fire on their own. It was like <laughs> you would hit the shutter and it would just burn through the entire roll by itself. And I was like, okay, I got to do something here. There's a reason that <laughs> the Japanese feel like the number four is not a good luck number. It's called the, the, it's called the Nikon F4. F4. The original batch Nikon F4s <laughs> yes. were like a house of cards. And so I switched to Canon. through, And, and also, I also at that time was starting to learn about Leica. And, I was, and Leica to me is still my all-time favorite. There's one sitting in my M4s right there. That's sort of, if left to my own devices and I could only take one camera, it would be a Leica with a 50 and a 35. I would love to have a digital Leica, but there's no freaking way I am putting out that much money to get a camera. There's you need a Sony, pal. Well, I mean, Amy works for Canon. I've got a 5D3. That's an unbelievable but camera. The nice, it's big. It's heavy. But the nice thing about like an A7R Mark II is it's small and you can put an adapter so you can put your Leica lenses on it. Yeah. Are so you that, offering to sponsor me? Is that what just happened? Actually, I'm not. Okay. But thank you for asking. All right. Let's just good to clarify that. So you have gone, you've gone the Canon route. We've done, what else have you used in the past 15 okay, so years? I learned on... Uh, Olympus? No, I, I, my mom gave me a, an, old East, uh, an old German rangefinder to learn on in the 50s. I still have it. It, she, it was a camera she got in 1954. Four fifty-five, I think. Yeah, nice. And it basically had a normal lens, a screw mount Leica, and it had an f three five aperture on a normal lens, so it was Not super bad. slow. And that's what I learned on was a rangefinder. Then I remember the first time the newspaper photographer handed a Nikkermat FTN with a two hundred millimeter f four Nikon lens, and we were at a fresh uh, football you just got game. Wood, right? Just total. I, I was wood. like looking through a telephoto lens, I was like, oh my God, because it was a fall day football backlit and I still can see it in my head. And I was like, oh my gosh, I got to get that. And then I bought a camera that had a screw mount lens called a Practica, which I still have. It doesn't work anymore. And then my my first real camera that I bought was an Olympus. 
OM1. OM1. Yeah. yeah. Those are great. They were great. OM12s were amazing. The 4Ts were the best. Thing. I had a I had an OM4T. Yeah. Um and then and Olympus at the time for those of you who don't know, Olympus like landed in the photojournalism world and they sponsored Magnum. They gave Susan Mizellis and Eli Reed and all these people cameras and, and I, UPI. And UPI and they were tiny cameras like they would like fit in size. the palm of your hand but they were SLRs they weren't rangefinders and they were solid they had that really beautiful wind and like when you hit the shutter it felt like a toy in your hand but then you'd hit the shutter and it was that clunk clunk really beautiful shutter I always loved those cameras and then so from Olympus you went you bought Nikon when you hit the Nikon. papers and then in, in 86 I was remember I was in DC so I was living out of a donkey bag I didn't have a car I got to assignments via the metro or by cabs so therefore, I was living out of a shoulder bag, and we had talked earlier about how messenger bags now kind of mess oh, up our backs. Yeah, it's our because backs are of tweaked. Yeah, donkey bags in the '80s that are we're paying the price now. So I was trying to lighten my load from two F3s and Nikon glass before the zooms, because there was not really two eight zooms. And so the T90 came out. In oh 86, yeah, I remember and that the was T90. a hell of a camera. Yeah, and I bought one on my own, and I tested it, and I thought, wow, this is really a great camera. So I ended up buying another one or another T70 or something and started to slowly migrate to doing Canon on my own. And then um, when I left the paper, the Tribune, then I was all Canon. And with, with a little, I just switched when I briefly moved back to Arizona in 1990 for about six months and I realized, oh my gosh, I got to switch go back, back to what? To Nikon because the oh. paper gave me Nikon gear oh, and okay. I realized, oh, that was a mistake. And I, Within six months, I was buying back gear again on my own because I realized, oh, the Canon stuff was vastly superior back in the time. Oh, yeah. So I used Canon. I was sponsored by them in the mid-2000s and loved their process. I loved their gear. Um, and then when, when and I... And then Sony happened. Well, then... And you turned but, your back on all of us? Well, what, what happened was is in, in 2009, my contract with Canon ended. Okay. And it was it was kind of a crushing blow I must say I mean I was really yeah was, you felt like you were doing doing a good things and but you know in in hindsight it was a good thing because I really wasn't doing what they needed which was to get people to switch and really showcase their gear so I learned a lot from it in the process but I also knew that in 2011 my gear was in need of replacement yeah. and I didn't want to go the route conventional route of replacing version two one lenses with version twos and 5d right. mark threes i just thought ah oh, there's got to be something else yeah so i started investigating mirrorless and i kept you know i went on my my quest so like don quixote i was <laughs> jousting at windmills and tried the samsung first which was yeah i remember that okay system it eventually went away you tried fuji in there too tried i remember fuji. Yeah. i tried i looked at olympus i looked at every one of them that was out there i looked at lumix now here's the funny thing about this because we could talk for 12 12 months straight about equipment right we're, we're all gearheads even though i claim i'm not i'm still into you're it a, a little bit you're a gearhead so when you when the canon gear in 2011 needed to be replaced you could have easily just said look i'll buy the well, if you have the 5d you could have bought the 5d mark ii whatever but there's some i had a 5d mark ii i needed a 5d mark three but i didn't want i i knew i needed two of them and i knew that the lenses needed to be replaced and i didn't have but there's also something inside all of us that kind of goes what you said a second ago which is there has to be something else yeah. we're always because i think creative people always have this thing of like Maybe there's something over better. here that's that's better, but also different enough to lead me in a new direction. Right. Where maybe it's even I'm going to be excited about going out in the field sure. again because I got this new thing. 
So you're you're looking and you dabbled in all these other other companies and food, let, to be fair, like I think this was the very beginning of the mirrorless yeah. kind of things because well, I remember having Mexican food with you and you had this little Fuji, and you were like, hey, this is pretty good, and I picked it up and I was like, oh, I would I, this would drive me crazy, but you were patient enough to like go, okay, this works, this doesn't, and keep searching. Whereas right. I, being a total dick, was like. This whole generation is is a waste. Give me a of, like, <laughs> man. It's a whole. It's a waste of time, and you are literally uh, going to rot in hell if you don't keep shooting film. So, what what landed you on Sony? Well, my friend Pat, I was ready to give up on him and go back totally to DSLR. My my friend Pat said, "Hey, Sony, Pat Murphy Racy. Pat Murphy Racy, who's also a Sony artisan. He and uh, and Pat and I go way back. He's a Marquette grad, just like me, and we're poor guys. Cheese, we went to Cheesehead School, and." Uh, Pat goes, Sony just came out with the A6000, and then the 70 to 200 F4 came out, and I needed that lens for the work I do. And he goes, I think you should try them. So I rented them. Yeah. And I was like, within minutes, I knew that, whoa, yeah. this was different. This was going to probably give me what I needed in terms of tracking speed and autofocus capabilities. Yeah. Because look, I'm not too proud to beg. I will take autofocus. I will take eye autofocus. I will take face detection. I will take whatever I can get to get sharp to get a images. Yeah, yeah, to get sharp. Yeah. Because I used to be a center focus recomposed guy with Canon, and that didn't work. Very I well. still do that. Yeah. So it was like, <laughs> if I can have a camera that does it and does it better than me, I'll do that. I'm lazy. I'll do it. And sure enough, I said, okay. So on the Fourth of July that year, I did a video. Yeah. That I quietly called my independence from DSLR video. Which was a football video? No, no. This was something else. This, okay. That was later. But it was basically saying that I was going to switch over to Sony and this is why from DSLR. And this was really... I mean, early on. Early on what they were doing. And that got somebody at Sony to notice. And then they invited me to be a part of their artisan program. And it's just been the most amazing experience for me. Because for one, I truly believe in them. And that was the key thing at the core of it was... I had to totally be a true believer. I couldn't just yeah. get up there and say, yeah, yeah, this is great stuff, and then quietly be pissing and moaning about something. It's like, this stuff is the future for me, yeah. and I think it's the future for most of us, whether okay. it's Sony or if it's... Top secret point here, full disclosure, I was once approached by Sony to be an artisan of imagery. Yes. They loaned me cameras. It was prior to mirrorless. I remember this. SLRs, lenses. Well, they had Zeiss lenses that were unbelievable. But I realized two things. One, I'm a terrible person to sponsor. Um, I go to sleep at 8 o'clock, and I love Miami Vice reruns, so that doesn't really help sell cameras. And um, Amy works for Canon, and I just felt like this just is bad for everyone involved here. It's just weird. And I honestly thought that there's a lot better people for to sponsor than me, and so I gave the equipment back. And uh, and now so Sony has really like made pretty pretty leaps and bounds. So the cameras that you're using now are the the ones that I see all over the place now. The A A7 something. I use the A7 R Mark II, which okay. is the 42 megapixel. That seems like a lot of megapixels. It's big. It's as big as it's almost as big as the five five DR. And what 5DS. tell me? I know the everyone raves about these cameras. What are the what's the downside of these cameras? Does the autofocus suck? Is there a shutter lag? Is the oh, viewfinder wow. horrible? Does it look like a does it look like you're looking at a video game? Tell me there no. has to be something wrong with these. There the autofocus is evolving. It's getting better and better with each subsequent generation. So okay. that's the thing. They just came out with the A sixty five hundred, which Pat 
Murphy Racy tested before yeah. anybody else had tested it. Are they heavy? Are they ugly? They're tiny. They're super small. I mean, it's smaller than a Leica. Okay, so the autofocus may not be like blazing, you know. Well, the A7R Mark II has better focus because it's got phase detect autofocus. Okay. The A7S Mark II, which the video folks like because it's 4K full frame, okay, has contrast-based focus, so it's different. So okay. every camera but has its slightly different capabilities, but... The A7 Mark II, the A7R Mark II, and the A7S Mark II literally are all the same physical body with button placement identically. So what that means is when you pick up one camera, even though they might be different, the you buttons are exactly the, the same. same. Now, as a photojournalist, let's say that That's I'm shooting huge. documentary work, which one of those three would I want? You'd want the R2. The R2. Yeah. And so, and you're getting these massive files and the lenses are good. Can, I you, use, get, can I, you get fast fixed lenses? Yeah. They have a 3514 Zeiss. I'll take it. They've got a 5014 Zeiss. I'll take it. An 8514 G Master. Don't need it. I'm yeah, an artist. But they make an 8518 Battis, which is, or, well, Zeiss makes it called the Zeiss Battis, which is uh, less That's, money. That sounds like a custom car. Badass? Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. But uh, if, and they also make smaller, less expensive lenses. Like the first, two of the first few lenses that came out with a 3528, which is a tiny little lens. It's like okay. a little purse lens. Yeah. And a 5518 Zeiss lens, which is about as long as maybe four inches. Nice. And it's super small, super sharp. Now, they've been su supplanted by the newer fast of, aperture of lenses. Of course. But they still offer the smaller ones. But you can make great photos with either one. Well, I can. I, but the well, average person can't do shit with this stuff. That goes without saying. But, right. Well, I'm going to shoot your portrait in a few minutes with one of these, hopefully, because I didn't bring, well, I did bring a camera, but I want to shoot the Sonys to, to figure it out. Um, the, the, the reality is when you buy in, and we, we talk, we've talked about this a hundred times, and we've sort of, you know, been, it, it's the reality of, there's always a buying cycle with digital. There's always new stuff coming. It's just a nature of the beast if you go into that system. But it finally feels like, it, for me anyway, and I don't, I don't use these cameras a whole lot, is it finally feels like we're getting to where we wanted to be 30 years ago with looking at, because look, 1997, I stood in the Sammy's parking lot in LA on Liber, on, on, on the Highland, not Highland. Fairfax. But yeah, Fairfax, with Amy, with a Canon camera technician. And I said, if you can build me a camera that looks like a Leica, that's digital with a full frame, with a real viewfinder and no shutter lag, even if it has a built-in fixed lens, I said, every photographer I know will buy one. And the guy looked at me and said, there's no market for that. And so that was 97 when I said that to him. And we're finally now sort of getting to the point where these are here. Unfortunately for me using Leica, I think their cameras are like seven to $8,000 for a camera body. That's that's eighteen month two year lifespan, and then you're looking at something else. It's just unfathomable to me that like I can't imagine spending that kind of money on such a short lived thing. That's why I think the value proposition on the Sony's Sony's are is better. So much better. I mean, even a Canon of five D three is like what three thousand bucks. Well, and they'll last for four years. Oh, probably. easily. But the thing about the Sony's because the mirrorless technology evolves. While you can certainly use an A seven or an A six thousand from twenty fourteen, you would probably if you can, you'd probably want to use. The, the A6500 because sure. it evolves so much faster than DSLRs do. I've I've always said that you can't go wrong with any camera that's on the market right now. Just go out and make yeah. photographs. You yeah. can make them with any camera, whether it's a Micro Four Thirds Olympus or Lumix yeah. to a Pentax medium format to the new Fuji that'll come out or whatever. They're all going to make great photos. It's not about the cameras. 
it's about the fact that you're engaged in photography, that you love making photographs, and that you have less of a barrier to making photographs. That's what I like so much about the Sonys. There's two things I'm going di- to dispute okay. in what you just said, because I can't let you off that easy. Okay. The first one is the idea that when you're in the field and you're using a camera, it helps to be excited about the camera in your hand. How, whatever camera that is, if you're an Olympus, you know, people were Olympus people or Nikon people or whatever, that it felt a certain way to have a certain camera in your hand. I'll take my M4, for example. Of all the cameras I have, that's probably the one. If I could only have one, I would take that. I love the way it feels. I love the way it looks, etc. But the other thing is that the camera will have some influence on what it is you're going to make. So certain things are made for the, the, the Leica rangefinder sucks for shooting football. Right. Unless you're Randy right. Reed. But... It's amazing if you're doing long-term documentary work sure. where you got to carry something all day long. So the Sonys, to me, look like a pretty decent blend of size and capability. I think that they... they where are. you're not sort of giving up anything to go down that route. Whereas the Canon is an unbelievable machine that shoots amazing video. They have motion pictures shot on it, but it's a heavier, bigger system. Well, DSLRs are building around a mirror box, which yeah. was there to get the light to hit film. We don't need it to... to right. Lift. We don't have film anymore, so... Sony, Sony basically said, well, if we can take the mirror box away, what does that mean? Well, it means that the rear element is closer to the film plane or the sensor. Right. And if you remember the old Nikons and the Leicas, they, the old Nikon F used to have the flip-up mirror to put the, the 21-millimeter lens or the 20-millimeter Nikkor that had that rear protruding rear element that right. got right next to the film. That was one of the sharpest lenses ever made, as are the, the 21 Leica and the 21 Zeiss, and they all have, I believe they all have protruding rear elements. That's I could right. be wrong. I think but so. But the, the physics haven't changed. It's just now with the mirrorless cameras, we don't have a mirror box to see an optical viewfinder, but we see an EVF, we see the back of the camera, and the, the rear element is literally right next to the sensor. That makes it sharper with less chromatic aberration. Sweet. I'd just gotten used to having chromatic aberration, and now everyone's trying to get rid of it. So. <laughs> yes. I guess I'll have to pick another style. Okay, so we've covered a lot of things. We've covered your history. We've covered the transition through the industry. We've talked about prints and books and wedding photography and kids photography and uh, Under Fire and Salvador, which is really the only question that oh I had God, that I we cared about the lead. what the answer was. We did bury the lead. And um, so I'm, I'm thinking we should probably end. That's an hour, hour and a half, which Whoa. is, uh, which is a lot. But I think well, for, for the two people who made it this yeah. far, <laughs> no, this thank is, you for listening. This is nothing. Yeah, there's no, um, no one will be listening this far. But well, somebody, someone out there will. So I think we're just going to have to continue this at another date. After I don't know, we'll maybe we'll start looking at individual images or something and do something along those lines. But yeah. I appreciate you taking the time uh, to do this. I've interviewed you a bunch of times before for other things, so it's nice to finally have you in the official dispatch category awesome and good luck with everything and your assignments this weekend and uh you know and getting me sponsored by by sony no i'm (laughs) kidding i don't want a sponsorship don't don't i'm i would be terrible but thanks again thanks dan